inerrant, written Word of God, the Bible. No man can know God apart from the Word of Revelation, the Bible. We could never have found God, no matter how long or effectively we tried. God rather found us. The book of Romans says that nature discloses God. The book of Psalms says the heavens declare the glory of God. We may stand and gaze into the starry firmament throughout a night and drink in all its beauty and its wonders and consider the vastness of creation and there see there is a God. But who is he? What is his name? What is he like? We may ponder the sea with all of its life and its life-giving ability and the cycles of the sea, how the waters rise through the atmosphere to descend again to water the earth. And we may see there that there is a God. But who is he? What is his name? What is he like? We may stand in awe with our breath taken by the beauty of a sunset and know that there is a God, but we cannot know him that way. We may tremble with fear at the fury of nature and realize that to God all of the earth and its storms are merely like a tempest in a teapot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We may see our smallness and our inadequacies. And we may know that there is a God, but who is he? What is his name? Only through his self-disclosure, through the rhema, the uttered word, the spoken word, the written word of God, only through that, through the Bible, may we know him. And in this passage this morning, we consider a proven authority. And this authority, the Word of God, is God's agent in all that God does. And this morning as we look at this passage, I want us to see from the text of the Scripture some of the things that this agent of God in all of His work, this tool and instrument to perform the will of God, some of the things that it does. In verse 22, this agent of God, this proven authority is described as a purifying agent. He says, since in obedience to the truth you have purified your souls unto or for a sincere love of the brethren, now fervently love one another from the heart. The condition for the continuing purification of our lives through the Word of God is obedience through to the truth as it is revealed in the Word of God. Only through the Word are we cleansed and made pure. Psalm 119, 9 and 11 says, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Selfishness 
an exaggerated and unreasonable love of self which really does not serve self. This selfishness was the source and the seal of the fall of man. And it is exactly opposite what God wants us to do and the way God wants us to behave and to live. In a very real sense, we have been saved, as Peter says here, in order to love other people. We are told to put them first, fervently love one another, he says. The word fervently means with intensity. It means strenuously, the way a man in a race strains to break the tape before his opponents. Fervently love one another. We are to put them first, not because it's pleasant, not because we always like it, but in our lives we are to put the welfare and the concerns and the needs of other people ahead of ourselves because it is right, because it is the command of God. Remember how Peter describes us in the first chapter as aliens, sojourners, residents in a foreign land. And you know, think about it, if you've ever been abroad, or even if you've ever been way north or west or east where you didn't know anybody. Think about the excitement, perhaps, when you were far from home and you saw an Oklahoma license plate on an automobile. In a foreign country, all of the foreigners suddenly put all of their differences aside, all of those from home who are staying in a foreign land, and they stick together. But Peter has gone beyond that metaphor describing us as aliens, as people of the same country. He says we all have the same father. We're all brothers and sisters. And if members of the same nation would stick together, surely members of the same family would stick together even more than that. And I propose to you today that on the basis of God's Word, it is a fact that no matter what we do, as a church, no matter what you do as an individual, no matter what you accomplish or how effective you are in any area of life, unless you fervently from a heart purified by the word love each other, it is a failure, a farce, and an abomination to God. God did not command us to be successful. He commanded us to be faithful. God did not command us to be right. He commanded us to be loving. Purified through the truth, the word of truth is God's ordained means for purifying us. True birth begins life. And true belief brings obedience to God. From the purified soul, of his child, the obedience which he demands and never lose sight of the fact that in all of the Word of God, one thing stands above all else. The obedience of love that he demands flows from a purified heart. And so whatever characterizes us and however effective we are, if love does not flow hotly and fervently from our hearts to all of those around us, the lovely as well as the unlovely, those who love us and those who do not, those who support us and those who hurt us, 
If that love does not flow, then the soul is impure and imperfect through disobedience to the Word of God. His Word, our proven authority, is a purifying agent. But then he also says this proven authority, the Word of God is a productive agent. For in verse 23, he repeats the thing now for the third time that he said in this first chapter, that we have been born again, not by perishable or corruptible seed, but by imperishable, incorruptible seed, that is, the living and abiding Word of God. Something impressed me as I was studying this passage, and I want to share it with you. It's one of the more exciting things I've realized in a long time. In the matter of human birth, when two parents, out of the love they share for each other, join themselves and produce a new life, the seed which produces the fetus which becomes the child is fertilized by the seed of the male, the father. And genetically, within the seed of the father, everything the child will ever become is contained in that seed. We do not have to fret. We do not have to wonder or worry about the indefinite future, about God bringing his work to pass in our lives, for we have been born with an imperishable seed that is already determined everything we shall become by the grace of God. An imperishable seed. The only way this perishing mortality could become incorruptible and abide forever with God is through receiving the imperishable seed of the Word. And in these verses, the term, the Word, is not the term with which we are so familiar. The term logos, which means the living Word of God. It is applied to Jesus throughout the Scriptures. No, this is the word rhema, which means that word which is uttered or spoken from God to meet our needs. It is the word which Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. The uttered word of God is the agent of bringing life. God brings children into new life only through the agency of the word. Romans 1.16, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Wherever the Word of God is, there is the Spirit of God. The Word of God is alive and quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, laying bare everything that we are, revealing all that we need because always and forever, wherever the Word of God is presented, the Holy Spirit of God accompanies the Word and makes it effective. The Word is the agent of birth. God honors the Word and every sinner in all of history for all time who has heard the Word has had an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ. For the Word is accompanied by the Spirit which convinces and convicts of sin and enables the sinner to exercise saving faith 
in God. And in verse 24, he says, All flesh is like grass, and all the glory of flesh is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. The word of God is not like anything else, not like anything in the world. You may go to the West Coast and stand in the great forest of the Redwoods and ponder with all those great and massive trees that have grown for so many hundreds of years, but all flesh is grass and they too will wither and die. You may stand on the crest of a great mountain and view the earth for a hundred miles in every direction and stand in awe of the majesty of the mountains. But then you would discover on the peaks of most of the mountains of the earth fossils of sea life and realize that the mountains were called forth from the depths of the sea by the Word of God. You may stand in awe of everything that nature contains, but the, nat the cycle of nature itself bears witness to what Peter says in quoting Isaiah chapter 40 in these verses. The, the cycle of nature, every year life comes from death and then goes its cycle and degenerates into death again. And Peter says everything in the world is like that. The glory of everything in the world is like that. All that humanity has, all of the all of the accomplishments of humanity throughout her history. Everything is like that. All will perish. All will fade. Like the flowers of the field, the flower of the grass, he calls it. There is some glory indeed in nature and in the accomplishments of man. There are some things of dazzling beauty and surpassing glory, but all of it will pass away. In the Greek, the verbs in these two pronouncements are really placed at the front end of the sentence. And it reads like this, an exclamation, withered the grass, fallen the flower. It is foolish above all foolishness that men have ever performed to spend one's life to obtain the flower of grass which will wither and fall dead and gone into the earth. Rather, this productive agent of God, His Word, calls us to invest our lives seeking that which abides and remains forever. This word abides. It is the living and abiding word in verse 23. It is the word which abides forever in verse 25. It is unmoved. It is fixed. It is permanent. And amid all that there is on the earth, only the beauty of God's word remains forever. Through the history of man, attempts have been made by people possessed of Satan to do everything humanly possible to stamp out the Word of God. Theological liberals have tried to tell us for the last century that the Word of God was not reliable, 
because the oldest copies of the Word of God we had dated to seven or 800 years after Christ. And then in 1947, the Spirit of God directed the path of a little Arab shepherd boy to a cave in the mountains near the Dead Sea. And there he discovered stone jars a thousand years older than the oldest manuscripts we had until that time containing all of the Old Testament, all of the Word of God. And when the scholars had spent their years Pouring over those ancient manuscripts, they discovered there was not a dime's worth of difference between what God had said and what had been recorded by men who held His Word in awe for all of those years. It is safe to say that the Word which you hold in your hands is over 99% exactly as God spoke it when it was written the first time. It abides forever. But flesh and its glory shall pass away. When death comes to the physical life, the dust of a Caesar is no better than the dust of his slave. For all flesh is grass and the glory thereof. It is a purifying and productive agent. And then as we move into chapter 2, it is a practical agent. The Word of God is not abstract. It is not theory. It is the textbook for living. Any, anything that is unpractical is also unscriptural. For God's Word is a practical agent in our lives. It cleanses us. He says in verse 1, Therefore... Because you are born of the imperishable seed. Looking backwards, therefore, because you are cleansed, because you are purified, because you are born again by the imperishable Word of God, therefore, lay aside all of the things that tie you to your old way of living before you knew God. This word laying aside is a very interesting word, a very vivid and colorful word. In the Greek... It is a specialized word that means one who has become very dirty in his work or in the heat of battle coming in and stripping off the soiled garments and throwing them aside so that he can be clean and re regain his cleanliness and his purity of body. Stripping off like one who hates the filth he has become covered with. Strip it off and throw it away. He talks of malice and guile, which is deliberate trickery, deliberately using others for our own gain. Hypocrisy. The word has come to mean one who uh, pretends. In the Greek, the literal meaning of the word is one who passes judgment from behind a mask. In other words, the one who judges is one who is not willing that anybody else knows what he is like, but he wants to judge other people. That's the real meaning of the word hypocrisy. And envy and slander, which are like cancer. Everybody, I suppose, enjoys slander. Slander can be the use of truth. 
in hurting someone else as well as using untruth. And I suppose that slander is the most devilish and satanic thing in the lives of Christians. The King James calls it evil speakings. That's a good translation. And you notice in his description of unholiness, he stops right there because the sin from within that expresses itself in the mouth always precedes the outward sins of execution, the things that we commit, the things that we do. And it usually occurs when one is not around to share the other side or to tell the truth or to defend himself. If you practice any of these things, if you cannot control your mouth, it is not a lack of tact, it is unholy, ungodly, and immoral, and it is satanic. He says, strip it off, throw it aside. It is a practical agent this proven authority of God's Word. And then it is a perfect agent. In verses 2 and 3, one of the most precious passages in the Bible, he says, like newborn babes desire or long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow, if or since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Growth is demanded by every kind of life. Any kind of life you want to think of demands growth. It is a prerequisite to life. When growth ceases, death sets in. In animal life, vegetable, intellectual, moral, or spiritual life, in any realm of life, growth is automatic. And in order to grow, we must be nourished. And Peter says that like a baby who desires only the milk from his mother's body, like the baby who has a constant craving for the pure and undiluted milk of the mother, we are to have a pure and holy and insatiable appetite for the Word of God. The King James translates this sincere milk. The word is really a compound word in the Greek, a hyphenated word, which means pure and undiluted. And only can we be nourished as Christians from the Word of God. Now, isn't that the problem with many of us? You have heard me say often that in dealing with people who have spiritual problems, I always, first of all, seek to determine their relationship to the Word of God. I dealt with a situation just recently when we were out of town, just happened to have to deal with something while we were visiting somebody, and I was struck all over again by the fact that every kind of a need a Christian has can be traced to a lack of the Word. You say, but that's too simple. How do you know? Have you tried it? Every need you have spiritually can be traced to your relationship to the Word. It is not enough to be taught the Bible in Sunday school. It is not enough to hear the Bible from the pulpit. You eat more than twice a week or you would die, and that is precisely the reason many are dead and ineffective spiritually. It is because of a lack of the Word. 
What would you think of a mother suckling a newborn baby that would feed the baby once a week? The Word is always there. There is always enough of it. It is always available. And the Word is pure and undiluted. Just as a mother's milk has a unique ability not only to nourish a child, but to provide protection and immunity from disease that would attack its little body, so the Word of God is the only thing that can protect you from Satan, from temptation, and from spiritual need. And he says, desire the Word. The surest dead giveaway I know of somebody with deep and terrible spiritual problems is the one who says either to themselves or aloud, either way, whether anybody knows about it or not, but the feeling is there of boredom and a disdain for and a lack of desire for God's Word. Only the pure, undiluted milk of the Word is God's perfect agent in meeting our needs. Notice that first of all, he has called the Word of God an incorruptible seed, and now he has called it an incorruptible or imperishable food that abides forever. And then notice in verse 4, we move from talking about the Word to talking about Jesus. And he says that he is a precious agent, a precious agent coming to him as to a living stone rejected by man, but choice and precious in the sight of God. He is called a living stone. He is at one time rock, hard, durable, powerful, indestructible, but at the same time, he is alive. He is a choice and precious agent. The agency of his blood bought our lives on Calvary and gave that life to us when we came to God trusting Jesus for the salvation of our souls. He is a precious agent. And then he is a permanent agent. In verse 5, here is an exciting thing. He says, you also, that's us, you and I, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The child is bone and flesh of the Father. Christ is the rock. We are little rocks. Christ is living. We are alive. Christ is durable. He shall last forever, and so shall we by the grace of God. He talks about a spiritual house. It is a unique house because all of the material in that house is living material. All of it is living material. And just as we share the living nature of the Father and of Christ, the mortar that holds the spiritual house, the church together is the fervent love of which he spoke in verse 23. 
We are joined to the Father by sharing His nature. We are joined to each other by the love produced because we all come from the Father. We are both the house of God, the holy temple of God, and the priesthood who offers sacrifices. A priest offered sacrifice on behalf of others. A priest brought people to God, and a priest proclaimed the word of God. And all of those functions belong to every Christian. All of those functions belong to every Christian. In the ancient world, the priesthood was limited to a few men. And if you wanted to approach God, you had to come to God through the agency of a priest. But when Jesus died, the veil of the temple, the separation between God and man was broken. And the writer to the Hebrew Christian says, Now we have bold and free access to the throne of God for ourselves. But remember that a priest does not minister only to himself. He ministers to others. And that is our purpose. How this passage holds together. For as it says in verse 22, we have been saved in order to love and to serve other people. We are being built up by the power of God into a living house that shall stand forever by His nature held together by the love we share with each other. God has had three temples on the earth. The first temple, the temple of stone built on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, has been destroyed and swept away by the sands of time and the destruction of conquerors. The second temple, the Lord Jesus has been taken to heaven, removed from this earth. But the third temple is the body of believers, all those who know Christ. And that temple will continue until the top stone is brought forth with shouting when Christ comes to perfect the church and rapture the saints. In the first temple dwelt a glory of God that the Hebrews called a Shekinah glory, the glory of God's presence. It was characterized by a sourceless light that glowed in the Holy of Holies and the smoke that accompanied it, and it was an awesome thing, like the glory, the Shekinah that dwelt over the top of Mount Sinai when Moses was on the mountain with the Lord. In the second temple, the scriptures tell us, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God was, He was in Jesus Christ. And in the third temple, in the church, in us, dwells the Holy Spirit of God trying to produce in us the life of Christ and the likeness of Christ day after day. We have a proven authority. 
We have one source and one only for all of our needs. We were born again by the agency of the Word. We are kept safe by the power of the Word. We live for Him by the Word. And we are redeemed now and forever and held fast by and because of the Word. It is a proven authority. It is God's agent in all that He does. And I submit to you today that in very urgent times, Peter wrote so that his readers would understand just as a baby must be uh, born because of fertilization of the seed, so we are born through God's Word. Just as a baby is nourished only by the mother's milk into health, so we are nourished by the Word. What is the need of your heart? Do you need purifying? The Word is God's agent. As God reveals the truth to us in the Word and we obey it, we are purified. What do you need? Do you need birth? Do you know Jesus? Are you saved? You can be born again today by the Word of God as you give your heart to Him and ask Him to forgive you and to save you. Do you need some practical help for the temptations of life? You will find it as you abide in the Word. And He, His Word is precious. It is permanent. Whatever you need, you will find in the Word of God. And do not think that you will find it in any other way or in any other place. God Almighty, God sovereign and free to do as He wills, has chosen that His agent is the Word. Whatever you need today, that need can be met by the Word. First, you give your heart to Christ in salvation. If you have done that, you come and confess your sins and let the Word of God cleanse you. And then one day at a time, like a baby who never ceases to crave the mother's milk, you feast on His Word. And then in the end, you will find Him a precious and permanent dwelling place as we together are stones in the living house that God has built. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank You that you, by sovereign choice, chose to reveal yourself to us in the Word. I thank you that there we may find all that you are for all that we need. And I thank you that you care for us more than we could ever have cared for ourselves. Now, Lord, quicken us by the Word. Honor today the Word and draw from many life-changing commitment. Father, may souls be saved as they find in Jesus everything that they need. May Christians be revived and needs be met and feet taken from the sands of temptation and planted on the rock through Christ. 
Father, I pray that you will today reach to us with grace, reveal it to us in such a way that we open our hearts to you and receive what you have for us. I thank you right now for what you're going to do. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Now, the time of invitation in our worship is not something extra. It is the entire purpose of worship. There is no way to justify building a church if it were not to proclaim the Word and invite people to give themselves to Jesus. We have come for the purpose of the invitation. There is no worship without response. All of your needs can be met every time you worship as you respond to the touch of God's Spirit. It matters not the message or the music. God, as you put yourself in the holy place, will touch you where it hurts and will tell you what He wants you to do. This invitation is for you publicly and proudly to obey Christ, to confess Him before men so that He may confess us before the Father. Whatever God would have you do, today is the day. There will never be a better time. It is urgent. It is eternal. God speaks. And when He does, that is the moment to respond. We will sing together hymn 349, Have Thine Own Way. You know the song, Make It a Prayer. Right now.